Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, and those that are going to tune into this um, afterwards, we're going to release this as a podcast episode. So we will, you'll hear this again if you want. Um, but this is kind of the first time that we've really had an hour set aside to just talk about what is somatic integration processing. We've we've traditionally called this SIP2. Um, we're kind of doing a little bit of a rebrand, um, especially after the content has been updated um, and some of the images have been reworked to kind of make it a little bit more accessible. Um, We've kind of rebranded it as healing the fragmented self. Um, Again, kind of centering the content on the most important part that we feel um, is present in the training. Um, There is a lot of theory in terms of conceptualization, but this is really like the goal Um, trying to establish a therapeutic connection with your clients that can embrace their internal diversity of self and help you have some tools to map that out. Um, But then again, what does it feel like to sit in the room uh, with somebody else with your own, what we'll talk about today, your own self-state constellation, kind of working and interacting with their various self-states or parts Um, and how that can kind of show up in some of your intervention work um, with your clients. So welcome. Welcome, welcome. I'm so pleased at how many people are actually like live on here right now. I expected like several would listen back to the recording, but it's just so exciting to see you guys on here. And my hope in this time is as uh, Bridger's prepared a few slides to kind of guide us in um, sharing about this training, but also I would love for your guys's questions and interests and curiosities to guide the conversation as well. So having taken SIP one and and practicing and integrating it for a period of time, where are some of your areas of focus or interest that um, maybe this training helps to speak to or add more to, and we can let that guide our time as well. So feel free to put things in the chat as it comes up, or you're welcome to speak up. Um, But if you're concerned about being recorded for the podcast in any way, just drop it in the chat and I can read it for you. Yeah. In the spirit of 
kind of starting that dialogue, I'd love to hear just off the top of your head or heart, like what brought you to set aside an hour to come listen to us talk more. Um, uh, that's always a fascinating question for me of like, we've got all these things out there in the world. So what's on your mind and heart coming to a talk entitled SIP healing the fragmented self? I'd like to say that I, feel like using the SIP model has been working really well. And I also, you know, they're being aware of their different aged parts and different things of that nature, how the, you know, the attachment, the neurodevelopment, them being aware. And then I sometimes have some good, good, um, Productivity, I would say, I don't know how to talk about it. I'm so self-conscious being on a podcast. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, uh, to bring it together, and sometimes that works well. Um, but I, I'm also just really interested in, are there more ideas, more efficient ways to mm. do that? Yeah, great. I feel like I have such a... Um, I, I have uh, an attachment and trauma background anyway um, and use it a lot. So I have my own style coming into SIP. Um, I really want to use the loops like efficiently and I don't feel like I, I have enough um, just practice, like even understanding how, um, what that would look like. Yeah. Um, after SIP one, um, there's probably some content that I'm unaware of that I can go to and watch the process happen. And so I, I, I maybe would like some resources on that. For sure. Yeah. For those that, um, might be listening to this later and who haven't taken SIP as well in the, in the room here as on the recording, um, Shannon, you're, you're talking about something that's really integral to our conceptualization of how, the therapeutic dynamic unfolds. So looping um, has some connotations from EMDR as being stuck, um, but we contextualize looping as a larger, what we call intersubjective process where we're interacting and feeling the emergence of feeling or affect, perhaps related to a memory consciously, but perhaps not. And as that activation occurs, how do we as the therapist be intentional with that affective emergence in our clients and help guide that towards our ultimate goal of memory reconsolidation or trauma resolution? And there can be many things I talk about with my clients as sometimes like a treacherous journey. Many things can happen um, as we be as we become intentional with this idea of looping and all that could come up for each of us the client and the therapist i think for many the pre kind of assumption is my work is going to bring up things in my client i don't know if we're always aware that that can also bring up things in us and so sometimes we're confronted by that and in sip uh, healing the fragmented self we talk about um, our own internal diversity as well um, that could be activated by the content of the session, the interactions, which is contributing, Shannon, to that idea of looping. 
Um, it's not just something we're watching the client do. We're along for the journey. We're along for the ride um, and, and contributing to uh, whatever outcome might be there, whatever might happen along the way towards an outcome. A couple of comments in the in the chat. One I want to speak to um, from Rebecca about integrating ego state. And if, mm-hmm. if ego state work or parts work is something that you really like to use or find helpful with your clients, as you'll start to see when as we talk more about the content in this training, is that this is really the the theoretical orientation and the neurobiological explanation of why that kind of work is so effective. And when we come to understand the why behind it, mm-hmm. we understand where fragmentation happens, why it's happening, and what does it mean to move more towards integration? Um, that is all about, like it's all over this training. Yeah. So those of you who use Ego State and are really interested in that or any type of parts work, uh, a beautiful partnering with this training for sure. Yeah, I love, Jen, how you said that of just the interpersonal neurobiology behind ego state, internal family systems, parts work, this really large umbrella in our field that on the surface seems to like, is it the same thing or is it, there seems to be some specific or particulars that are different across these different trainings or different books or articles or whatever. And so that's where really that was kind of the impetus for the creation of this training is let's apply the basic SIP framework of the Venn diagram and the triangle to the emergence of self and its diversity. Um, So any language that you're familiar with, uh, whether it be ego state, internal family systems, parts work, inner child work, all of these different things, this content speaks to that directly as a developmental um, process within, within the emergence of the self within the discovery of the self. Um, more specifically, we all have learned emotional experience that helps us figure out what our internal diversity is going to be. As you can imagine, with any developmental process, trauma is going to create some pretty dramatic impact on that. And that's where we can start seeing some of these um, more as internal family systems talks about it, like these exiled parts of us, or these parts that might just feel like they're holding a lot of trauma, they might have specific ages. That's all, again, makes sense when you look at it from the developmental neurobiological perspective, as we all learn how to do that in relationship with our attachment figures throughout our life. Was there one more in the chat, Jen, that you... Um, yeah, just in a, um, Kelsey hasn't taken SIP one yet, but is preparing to. So just kind of getting more information on all of it, which super excited to have you at SIP one. Um, yeah, there's such, such good material in both. I'm excited. Yeah. I think what will be a little bit of a curve with this talk and for those on the podcast as well, just kind of tuning into this is the images are continued from SIP one. So you'll see as we, as we start to share these slides, like there's some pretty intricate images. And if you haven't looked back at your SIP one material, or perhaps haven't taken it, it's going to feel, I I would imagine kind of overwhelming to look at. Um, But that's again, diligent in connection where we work through these images all the time together. And there's hours and hours of us talking about these things to go back to, if you ever want to, um, at any point. So 
Jen, I don't know if it just with time, we could spend yeah. like so many hours talking about yeah. this, but um, just to kind of get into some of the content, SIP as a tool for case conceptualization, you know, we have an entire training devoted three days of didactic teaching, um, specifically devoted to understanding what is case conceptualization and what does case conceptualization look like when we kind of layer over this vast wealth of scholarship and literature and modalities, et cetera, with what traumatology as a field has shown us to be um, relevant in this concept called traumatic resolution, which is what um, EMDR, as well as several other um, modalities are seeking when they identify a memory and wake it up in the body and bring it to resolution or reconsolidation. So that's where this Venn diagram comes from. If you're if you are familiar with SIP one, you'll you'll recognize this immediately. If you're not familiar with SIP, the Venn diagram consists of attachment and neurodevelopment, somatic psychology, and adaptive information processing. For those familiar with EMDR, you'll hear AIP, and hopefully some light bulbs will kind of click on. But that for us is the way of talking about memory, a very specific way of talking about memory. SIP is not one of these lenses in the Venn diagram. SIP is that intersection in the middle, which is where the triangle comes from. Um, but then again, it, it is so much in the overlap. I had a consultee ask me very recently, like, do I start with one sphere in mind when I'm doing history taking or working on a problem with a client? And for me, it was really clarifying that my gut reaction is to say, I really do start in the middle and if I get into a stuck point, I venture out into each of the lenses as it feels relevant to me. So I'm kind of experiencing the intersubjective space with my clients, feeling what um, is coming up for me as I'm hearing them work through what they're working through. And that's when the curiosity starts to help me kind of navigate into uh, one of the spheres um, or all of the spheres potentially to help, again, get a fuller picture and see a more authentic way forward in, in the treatment process. So again, just uh, this is before we jump off into the new material, um, SIP as a metapsychological theory, it's not one theory. Um, it is a synthesis, uh, an active synthesis. So we're constantly updating um, the references and reworking some of the concepts and teaching tools. Um, but we're hoping to help further our field's integration of different theoretical perspectives, different treatment modalities, different ways of working towards this goal of trauma resolution and embodied living. When I think about SIP-1, we're really building the understanding as human as organism. So we're coming to understand the different regions of the brain, how they function, how our environment and life experiences come to influence that development. As we start to transition into SIP-2, we're now looking at how from that organization um, of our nervous systems and our brain, how does our concept of self emerge out of that? So now we're exploring the development of self and concept of self. Um, and that's where we start to get into um, what is the quote unquote normal development. And then when trauma is present, how does that development become influenced by that? 
and complexify based on the complexity of the environment and the circumstances. So you're seeing these images of the Venn diagram kind of, kind of forming our triangle. Now we're going to see that continue to evolve where the triangle becomes more complex than that. Yeah, I, I think that theory in general can feel really abstract for, for a lot of us. Like, how do I make the connection to my client showing up in the room? And for SIP, it's a very, you know, if you've taken it recently, we have a new teaching metaphor where we talk about the difference between like a worm's perspective or a person in a space shuttle's perspective. Like the tool, the concept of SIP is to help us zoom in and out to get a close-up picture of a very specific affect in response to a very specific situation, more like that worm perspective deep in the dirt, or zoom out and see this whole landscape um, as an unfolding developmental process that has major implications for how that person sees themselves and in relation to the world around them, answering very core philosophical questions like, who am I? Who am I allowed to be? Is the world open to me and my authentic expression of self? When do I have to put on strategy and hide parts of myself to perform a specific function to get a, a you know attunement or acceptance or validation from my world around me? And how is all of that culminating with each passing day, month, year of my life as we continue to reference our past experience for present? Uh, embodied awareness and future prediction. And that's really like the core. If I had to, if we, if we had to like strip away all of the teaching tools, SIP2 is who are you? And, and how does that really, how does that really function? Where does that come from? How diverse is that answer able to be and in the presence of whom? Um, so as we get farther into the material, um, I, I again, keep that kind of center of mind. It's like, who are you? And I, I would say what it offers is a tool for conceptualizing that deepest question ever, right? Like to ask the question, who am I, is so complex that we can't even begin to express that um, in a single phrase or a set of phrases. And so what SIP2 is looking at is how do we begin to conceptualize that and organize it in a way that we could start to explore it talk about it and work with it in the therapy room because that's ultimately where like the trauma healing is going to be offered. Um, and so it's still a tool for case conceptualization, but it's really looking at how do we begin to identify and work with this? Who am I? Um, SIP one is how did I become this? And SIP yes. two is now, how am I interacting in the world? Mm -hmm. Again, any questions or comments, please feel free to, to jump in. This uh, we, we didn't include our like classic fire hose uh, image on this, <laughs> like these few images here, but it's very much uh, still that experience sometimes. So for those familiar with SIP1, this is, this is hopefully very familiar image um, showing on the right side, the Venn diagram and in the middle, the SIP triangle. On the left side, you see one of the, the cardinal images of SIP, which is human as triangle. So that triangle in the middle of the Venn diagram is really made up of, just as Jen mentioned, um, a, a conceptualization of a triarchical organization of the brain, hind, mid, and forebrain, 
and how that uh, comes into its alignment and connectivity throughout life. Um, when Whenever you're working with a, a client, there's that dysregulation, um, or we call it in, in SIP1, the wonky triangle, when we get kind of out of whack and our connectivity, um, our connectivity is kind of thrown off and some of our functions are inhibited. That's where we're we're looking at the middle of the triangle to see what is going on with this person and how does it feel to be in the room with them? What's their response to my modalities? How do I feel in their response to my modalities? Um, again, making a lot of space for internal reflection on what the therapeutic process feels like and what's ultimately coming up for the client that can help us understand where we're going to go from here, uh, regardless of the modality we use. So then in SIP 2, in, in this next training, Healing the Fragmented Self, we further that development of the image. So it's like SIP 1 stopped with the Venn diagram and the triangle. In SIP 2, we're really talking about how does the developmental influence of our environment attachment, different contexts like work and school and friendship relationships, different experiences that we might have, what impact does that really have for our experience of mind or our experience of self? So within SIP2, the concept of core self wraps around the Venn diagram. So everything you learn in SIP1, again, is furthered and applied into the emergence of self. Um, when Caleb and I were, uh, this is a couple of years ago now, but really thinking about what is going to go into the literature review for SIP, um, the concept of self, it feels like is so, so important and convoluted and complex. You can talk about it in a brief kind of application, but where it came from, how diverse it is across these different contexts throughout our lives, that takes for us, all of SIP1 to help us explain, like that's a big preface to this training. Um, and now that we're here, really conceptualizing, okay, what, what does it mean for an organism to have gone through however much life your client has and to then have a self that is congruent and incongruent with that lived experience simultaneously? Like, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of the different parts of self that seem to show some relationship to congruence or incongruence with their lived experience um, and using the Venn diagram to, yes, map out those experiences. But in SIP2, we're really talking about the larger sense of core self, which is represented here uh, on this image. So... As we get into more, um, a deeper inquiry into humanist triangle and the relation that our developmental experiences has to our concept of self, we introduce uh, three different theories to help us really make sense of the meaning of neurobiological development. Just as with SIP1, we start at the bottom and work our way up. Um, this is true both cognitively uh, in our, our neurocognitive development, but also in our experience of mind. So this is a distinction we make in SIP2 that what first was physiological, um, beginning prenatal in our development, then becomes psychological and vice versa. So this is a, a reciprocal relationship between physiological development and psychological development. 
to get into that, we begin with affective neuroscience kind of at the base. So this is looking at our different affective circuits, all organized in the hindbrain and how different experiences can help either uh, encourage and attune to a full affective expression. So my rage is, is acceptable. My grief is acceptable. My joy is acceptable. My desire is acceptable. That's a really robust sense of affective attunement or for traumatic situations where we don't have that same degree of attunement. Maybe grief was never allowed or rage was never allowed or our desire was never allowed. This gives us a really uh, um, intricate perspective on some of the developmental consequences of that traumatic environment and what exactly it was attacking within the self. Um, as with SIP-1, that creates your foundation. So throughout those developmental periods and those um, large uh, milestone kind of growth points, you're looking then at the stability you're setting for the larger neurobiological development of the brain and the mind. Moving up into the second tier with interpersonal neurobiology, looking at how attachments continue to shape that affective expression and give way to our conscious sense of self, our conscious sense of mind. Then into the final highest realm of the triangle with neuropsychoanalysis, looking at the fragmented self as a result uh, of our early lived experience, and that fragmentation exists on a spectrum. This is why we talk about internal diversity as so much more than just, does this person have DID or not? Like that's a really binary kind of black and white perspective. For us, DID exists on a on a far end of the spectrum of a natural neurobiological process. Um, and I know that's an eyebrow raised statement, but stick with us, like come to the training or listen to the podcast. Like we make, I believe, a strong case for that. Um, and in that, if that were true, that would mean that internal diversity begins in our most fundamental uh, experiences as human beings. Anything to add there, Jen? I feel like I'm so much taking up space. <laughs> no, no, I I appreciate it. Um, I I think that spectrum of dissociation being spectrumized, the fragmentation of self being spectrumized, means that from our earliest existence, like we are having to respond to our environment and those that we are dependent on needing our meet our needs we have to figure out what of my true core self is able to be seen and known and present in order to ensure my safety and survival mm. and so fragmentation of self being on a spectrum uh means that we all fall on there somewhere um it means that this understanding of the fragmented self is applicable to all of the clients we work with not just those who maybe have more um severe presentations of dissociation yeah. but it's a way of working with all humans and understanding human development it takes the concept of sip1 of like strategies and it comes to understand it on such a deeper level. This is not just maybe a strategy that I consciously pull out uh, when I really need it, but this has become such a necessity in my development. It actually becomes a part of who I am. 
Um, and to learn how to function without it is really challenging and difficult. And so with this conceptualization, we can start to meet those strategies and learn how they are a part of their development of self and how we work with that, mm-hmm. how we actually come to meet that in the therapy room and experience these new disconfirming experiences to unlearn that way of existing and functioning in the world. Yeah, all for authentic expression. I think one of the implications of that spectrum is that we're really depathologizing dissociation and its its mental correlates. So it's not a good bad spectrum. It's not to say a, a, a less disintegrated human is better than a more disintegrated human. It is just what it is. <laughs> um, as you go throughout life, different parts of you might feel more acceptable to others than not. And so you've got to figure out within yourself, what do I do with all of the parts of me that seem to be getting negative feedback? Or what do I do with all the parts of me that are being directly exploited by my environment and the different attachment figures within that? And that's what ultimately, if we're not able to attune to a safe, authentic expression of self, and other, then we move farther along that disintegration spectrum. Um, And we'll talk more about that as we get into it. Can I ask a question? Yeah, Shannon. Do we have strategies um, available to help when there's not a disconfirming experience to be offered yet, at least on like a wide scale? Thinking of a lot of my trans minor clients here in Tennessee. And I don't have the ability to offer them much outside of the room as far as a disconfirming experience of safety. Yeah. Uh, I definitely have something for that. Jen, do you? Right. I think my quicker answer to that is, do we have strategies available? Absolutely. And the fact that they're surviving with that reality means that those strategies are already at play. Um, they have found some way of existing in that very unfortunate truth um, and still figuring out how to survive. They probably, you know, we all have multiple strategies. And so when we're working with clients, it's to to be looking at how is this strategy honoring and serving you? And then also sometimes we meet strategies that are uh, perpetuating pain in ways or or preventing them from experiencing the moments that they need to experience. So short answer, yes, their strategy. And then it's about how do I look at this in a way and help to meet that person uh, honoring their strategies while also being able to uh, work towards more integration of self, if that's safe. Yeah. Shannon, your question, I think, gets like the rubber on the road, so to speak of like, in something like uh, um, a, a sexual identity, where it's not just choice, you know, it's not choice. This is something where you're confronted with not just a person that doesn't like how I behave sometimes. These assaults are felt at the deepest level. And that's again where SIP2 is going to be really articulate in how devastating those attacks can be and feel and how ultimately threatening they are to to our individual clients and ourselves um, because it sees 
your expression of self not as just a choice you're making, but as something that is congruent with who you are in your bones. Sexual identity is a great example of that, where for many for, for many people, the acceptance of how they feel is directly assaulted. And so within themselves, they're left to figure out or contend with what am I allowed to be if who I really am is not acceptable? And that's where you see strategy and having like several clients on my caseload that do identify as trans or LGBTQ plus like suicide as a strategy is an unfortunate like plausibility. But that's where the stakes are so high because it's not just a choice. It's not just a behavior. This is this is an intimate, uh, fundamental expression of self. And so, if that's rejected, then where, who am I? Um, so, very sh- again, time kind of trying to make it simple. Yes, we have strategies, but we as therapists, I think, really need to open our our perspective on what strategies are possible trying our best to remove this good, bad compulsion that we have to see some strategies as good, some strategies as bad, like try your best to attune to the desperation of a person who's lived a majority of their life feeling unacceptable in who they really are, who they really experience themselves to be. Yeah. 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 That question really gets to the heart of, um, I think what all of this is really about. So we're going to swing hard left back into the left brain really quick. Um, This image is built over the course of almost an entire day. So I'm not going to like explain each of these intricate pieces, but I included this because I wanted to foreshadow just how specific we're going to get in this training, talking about from a neurodevelopmental perspective, how we learn to make sense of ourself and our environment around us. That means down to the stimuli of a light turning on or feeling hungry or the temperature changing outside or a person raising their voice. All of our experience of those things is learned interpersonally. You know, that's kind of the bedrock of interpersonal neurobiology, that our experience of the world and ourselves within it is learned relationally. That changes our physiology, which changes our mind, and the whole reciprocal conditioning process begins. Those go on, those experiences of these different uh, sensory stimuli create representations of the world around us. And that almost creates a, or that not almost, that creates a template that we then use to predict whether or not our expression of self is going to be acceptable or not, whether our behavior is going to be acceptable or not, and how safe we're really able to be in in the environments that we interact with. I think for a lot of clients, this is where the major hangup is, why they like finally came to therapy, because they're like, I can't get out of these, these ruts of experiencing threat around every corner. I can't even go to bed anymore because I'm so afraid. Like there's no resolve to the traumatic activation and the strategies that come out, it just keeps on registering as threat. That's again, where we've got a major problem within the templates that we've learned to hold dearly 
uh, throughout our life and our experience with our with our attachment figures. And all of that is held within the core self. Yeah, sorry, Jen. Well, no, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, I'm 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 I turn it over to you. <laughs> what I want to say is like this: the thing that gets me so excited about this image. We we take a long time to build even what it means, but so you guys can know what do you take away from it at the end. This teaches us exactly how these <clears throat> internal working models are created, which gives us the keys for how to change them. When you have a concept of self, if you've ever worked maybe in EMDR, another modality, <clears throat> where it's like they have this core belief about themselves and I just can't get it to shift. We're working on memory after memory. We're trying intervention after intervention. And it's just they innately believe I'm bad or I'm worthless or I'm unlovable. When we really understand how that model was built and created down to the tiniest details of sensory stimuli, motor stimuli, affective stimuli, and know how it gets built, we then have the answers for how we come to unbuild it, to reconstruct it, and to find new, more adaptive models to work from. Yeah. You're really like reverse engineering disconfirming experiences. Like if that's our goal, we want our clients to have a disconfirming experience of the world around them that says, I see you and I love you and you're okay as you are. And you're like, whatever the desire is, that's a really lofty goal until we set it on the foundation of this developmental process where we can engineer those experiences as best we can, knowing that that doesn't mean that they're going to be healed because their world around them may not be as attuned or sensitive to their developmental needs, but at least it's a place to start. That's where we learn what safety could feel like if we could express ourselves in this way and feel accepted and invited to continue that authentic expression, this is where we get to be really specific about what those disconfirming experiences could look like down to the sensory stimuli uh, of a moment. Yeah. So within, uh, this is kind of like midway through um, the, the training, this is kind of our presentation of lifespan theory. So all that's come before this kind of resulting here that we are holistically conditionable. Um, that means that we're responsive to our environment and that ultimately who we are 30 years down the road of our life is a product of the 30 years that we just lived from relationship to individual experience, et cetera. The parts, structures, and functions of the human being are organized through these different uh, sensory motor affective uh, experiential learning moments that we just kind of touched on. And that uh, this learning forms our concept of self and other throughout the lifespan. And that creates that reciprocally conditioning process between physiological change and psychological change. This goes on and on moment after moment. Um, thinking about looping, like this is really some of the implications of those loops where what is coming up affectively from our physiology is creating changes in our psychology and in our mind. So that's where top-down work only gets us so far when we're just contending with uh, the result of physiological bottom-up activation. Um, we really need to be, uh, again, beating a, a a drum that's that's going on all the time at beyond like 
attunement to physiological activation is the core of trauma resolution. So before we go really any farther, we're going to kind of turn it over to you guys for a moment um, with, you know, you've got now at least um, the idea that SIP2 is about who you are. You know, SIP1 was introducing you to some of the ways to start explaining why that might be from, again, just a very kind of high level uh, uh, experience. But SIP2 really being about who you are and how the world around you uh, may or may not be open to an authentic expression of that answer. So this moment is for you to kind of reflect to yourself, um, who are you? And I just want you to sit for a, for a couple minutes pondering that question. Who are you? Notice all the different ways that start to come to your mind to explain that. In the live training, we uh, get to do this um, again in person where we're, we're able to kind of just be all together in the experience of this question and what I'm about to say next. Um, so I'm not sure how it'll function in this moment, um, but feel free to put it in the chat or if anyone would like to share, um, just unmuting their mic. And for those uh, listening to the podcast, uh, just notice how it feels to hear what I'm about to say. So you went through that whole process of just thinking about who are you? Now I want you to try and tell me who you are. Imagine what it might feel like if you were asked to type that in the chat box to share with the group. Think of what words you would use or how you would go about doing that and what it would feel like. Yeah, what it would feel like to try and explain that. Again, if you feel like sharing, please do. Hmm. Is anyone willing to share their experience, even if you don't try to tackle the feat of saying who you are, just what it feels like or what you noticed about that reflection? I've got some comments are coming through. I was going to say that the feeling is, uh, it, 
a little chaotic for me, a little overwhelming to try to, the feeling of trying to explain that, to answer that specific question because yeah. of all the different parts. Yes. And diversity. <laughs> yeah. Chaotic and overwhelming because of the diversity, complexity. Yeah. But exciting. Not, not, not necessarily in a negative way. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah. But yeah. just sort of, um, like, <laughs> yeah, the comments in the chat are, are really um, speaking to some of that same thing of like, it feels ingenuine to try to explain who I am because of that internal diversity. And that is really just imagine how many moments of your day and of your relationships are having to settle for what we call an SIP2 objectifications of who you are because that huge, expansive, ever-evolving sense of self has to somehow like fit into this easily digestible, easily explainable answer. And it's really fascinating to go through some of these um, trainings and watch um, how people kind of try and work around that feeling of objectification, of saying like kind of broad things, and others go right for I am what I do. Um, so they'll talk about counselor or mother or father or whatever. And just to hear that diversity, knowing that either way, there's so much left out. And what are the implications of that? And think of then how your clients are interacting in their worlds, especially when you introduce trauma to either your client's life or our life. That makes that process of understanding self and interacting and expressing it to others all the more difficult. I really appreciate your comment, your comment on here, Estelle, about how I see myself is different than how others may see me um, or how I feel like how I see myself and how I am seen is very unique. I may not match. Yeah. Uh, that's such another layer to the complexity of who am I? It's, who am I based on what's mirrored to me from other people? And who do I experience myself to be? Um, and in a world where sometimes those don't align, or maybe they never were able to align. Maybe I didn't get to let those people around me see me for how I experience myself. Yeah, I also really love, um, Laura, your, your comment of it feels reductive, like I'm just skimming the surface. Yeah. Very much. So with the last saw, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I saw lots of like cubes of snapshots, photographs of me throughout history, my history like coming at me and then when you asked me to put it into words, I was like, oh yeah, but I didn't even try. I'm like there's no way. Like there, I don't even have words for what that meant. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. Thank you for that exercise. Yeah. I also, I also like Dot's comment about how, how we feel about ourselves will change from day to day mm. and how important that is just based on where our headspace is. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. For me, um, I conceptualize my sense of self as like an internal table um, I call it the boardroom just because there's a whole backstory to that. But anyway, um, 
what's interesting is that, and we talk about this in SIP too, that whatever answer you gave is a attempt at representing a simultaneous like authenticity to that question. Like I want to answer authentically. And I'm trying to figure out like, what's the purpose of answering this question? Like, is there a right answer? Is there an intention by the person asking me this? Like it, it's a combination of those things. So it's almost like your whole internal diversity is trying to understand itself, then explain itself by understanding the inter- the intentions of the other person asking you. So it is that kind of combination of, I'm trying to even know how to like wrap my arms around <laughs> how diverse and expansive and, and kind of like, uh, yeah, slippery understanding myself is within myself. And I'm trying to figure out like, why is Bridger asking me this question? And what is the room going to think of my answer? And what do I think of my answer looking back at it? Maybe I want to edit it. Like, how do I, how do I say it better or differently uh, for a different, for a different reason? Yeah. This exercise is one of my favorite parts of the training because it, how it's such an embodied experience of what we're trying to get at with all of these very cognitive and intellectual concepts and words of learning how that comes to be. And then once it is, how we experience it and work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my hope in this short little blip of time, we've gotten to be with you all that the feeling of this moment from the exercise is what you'll take to represent what the training really is. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's, it's that sitting in curiosity at the most beautiful thing that we have, that we have, and that's ourself yeah. and how we come to understand it and view it in a way that offers us opportunities of being able to heal the wounds of that self. Um, And that through conceptualization around the self, we can uh, come into relationship and be able to work with the parts of us that show up to protect and the parts that have need and, and all those, we can come into true safe connection with other people if we know how to work with that. I'm going to stop sharing. So your screens might adjust here in, in just a second. But just with the last 10 minutes, I don't want to share really any more slides. Um, would love to hear just from, from you all of what you're thinking, what questions came up or what thoughts came up um, throughout just this like scratch of the surface of, of the training and um Really, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, the next training, um, we'll we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, uh, when you listen to the episode, I'll also have like bookends of me talking. So it's not just like a unedited version of this conversation, but I will include that as well. But it's December um seventh through the ninth um and it's like our the rest of our trainings uh 8 a.m to 5 30 p.m central time and it's this training is all virtual um so it is it will feel very similar to this um but we wanted to make it as accessible as possible and that's the best way we found so far
there is a possibility that next year we'll have uh, the first one will be in person in Kentucky. So yeah. uh, it would be really special to get to do it in person again. Yeah. I'm going to drop a discount code in the chat <clears throat> for those of you who are on here, uh, our guest podcast listeners as well. Uh, we can share that in the comments. Maybe if you guys choose to register for an upcoming training, uh, please use that for $50 off. It's all caps discount 50. No space between discount and 50. Also, don't hesitate to reach out with questions. Um, could be specific to the training, um, anything like that. We're more than happy to connect schedule a little time to chat uh, if Zoom is helpful or correspond via email. So you can find both Bridger and my emails, direct email and contact on the website at connectbeyondhealing.com. Thanks, Laura. Hey. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. Take care. We hope to see you on a future training. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.